Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. The fact that we had gotten to such a dark place as a society in our relationship with social media, you know, we scroll endlessly and we're scrolling a bunch of content that people put out there that are essentially their highlight reels. Hey, let me put the most beautiful photos up that people love. Oh, let me put the fabulous stuff out here. I was like, I am so fake. I am showing up in such a fake way right now and that's not authentic. We have gotten so caught up in getting validated by likes. And as I was talking about squad in many different venues, people were like, wow, that is so true. I am lonely. I am also not talking to my friends. I am spending so much time scrolling on social media. Today, I'm talking to Isa Watson, co-founder of the voice-only messaging app Squad, which encourages genuine connection with your closest friends. Isa is also the author of Life Beyond Likes, and we're going to be discussing just that, how social media affects our daily lives, living a more fulfilled life, and diving into Isa's inspiring journey. I'm Erica Kohlberg. This is Erica Taught Me. And today we're here with Isa Watson. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between 6 to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between 6 to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28, so go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. I want to ask, what was the motivation behind writing Life Beyond Likes? It was a few things. So I am the founder of a company called Squad, which is a technology company. And our app really helps people go deep 
um, more consistently with their friends every day. Makes it fun and easy for people to talk to their friends. And as I was talking about squad in many different venues, people were like, wow, that is so true. I am lonely. I am also not talking to my friends. I am spending so much time scrolling on social media. So it was, it was that reaction I was getting when I was giving talks about squad and the app in a lot of different places. And then the other thing was just the fact that we had gotten to such a dark place as a society in our relationship with social media. And I just felt like a lot of people that talk about the topic are kind of older, out-of-touch white men who maybe don't reflect the generation that is actually using social media the most. Um, And so I said, you know what? Given, you know, my experience with Squad, my own personal experience, there's a huge opportunity to kind of put out a great piece of work on this topic. What do you think people are getting wrong when it comes to how social media affects them? I think people are, A, not realizing the impact that social media has on them, has on their behavior, and has on how it makes them feel about themselves, right? And so there's just a general lack of awareness of what it does to us. So first of all, you know, we scroll endlessly, and we're scrolling a bunch of content that people put out there that are essentially their highlight reels, right? These aren't like the the messes of their day-to-day. These are literally all the great things that they want you to say. And so when you compare my real life to your highlight reel, I'm not going to feel too great about myself. (laughs) And so when we get into this kind of comparison trap, we forget that like people are only sharing the snippets of their life that they want you to see, And so I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is around, you know, like I said, how it shifts our behavior. We have gotten so caught up in getting validated by likes, right? And I've been there before, so I'm not saying I was never, I never subscribed to it, right? But I also have friends where if their post doesn't get a certain amount of likes in the first five minutes, they'll just take it down. They're like, oh, this didn't perform well. This is not the content that people want to see. Like, but you're not a content person. You're like a lawyer. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so one of the things that social media has done to us is that we've allowed it to shape what we share. The things that get a lot of likes, we tend to share more of that. The things that may not get as much engagement, we tend to share less of that. And so we end up kind of falling into this lopsided, one-sided person when we're completely multidimensional. So I think that between the self-awareness and how our behavior shifts around getting validated by strangers that we'll never laugh in the same room with, that's what I think people are getting wrong about social media. Yeah. Was there anything when you were going through this research process, because I know you come from, I mean, you have all of these degrees from these very prestigious schools. Was there anything as you were going through the research that really struck you as, wow, I had no idea that was the case? Yeah, And it's really a few things. You know, one of the most historical pieces of research on social connection is from a guy named Dunbar. And his research showed that we can have no more than 150 meaningful connections, period, right? And no more than 50 kind of semi, like semi-close. But as, as it pertains to people that we're actually close to, like very, very close to, it was no more than five, And so I think that we've kind of navigated our lives in a way where we're validated by how many people we know 
And I have you, I don't know if you've heard that term, your, your network is your net worth or yeah. whatever that is, right? And so when I graduated from business school and I was working on Wall Street, I was going to this event to meet these people and that event to meet these people and this happy hour to meet these people. And, and I was just like, I was so drained because I was meeting all these people, but they were loose connections. And so I was pouring out and expending a lot of energy on that, but not getting anything in return because I actually wasn't investing in my real friendships in the way that I was investing in building my network. And so um, I think that was one of the things that stood out. We don't need a bunch of friends. We just need a handful of friends. There's a correlation of happiness uh, where people who have, you know, fewer friends kind of in that five to 10 range who are they're consistent with, they're the happiest compared to people who say, oh, I have 20 good friends or I have 30 or 100 good friends. And so that's one of the things that I think stood out to me. And it was so obvious when I read it. Yeah. But um, I didn't necessarily think about it as much until then. That's so interesting because I've always had like a close circle of friends and I look at these people who have 20 different friends and I'm just like, wow, how do you do that? I can't even imagine doing that, but maybe it's better to have just a core tight group. I mean, smaller is better. Quality over quantity, right? Yeah. I turn down so many people for brunches and lunches and dinners and all the things and they're great people, but I need to preserve my energy and I need to make sure that I'm investing it in a way where I'm going to get something returned to the system. Mm-hmm. And when I say, I, I don't say that in a way that is selfish, but when it comes to energy and, and me filling up your tank, my friends fill up my, my tank as it pertains to encouragement and as it pertains to positivity and, and just kind of a vibrance, right? And so I think that when you overextend yourself, that's when you don't get your tank refilled. But smaller is definitely better. I probably talk to the same five people every day. That's good. Was there anything as you were writing the book that you decided, oh, I'm going to change my behaviors now because I learned this? Yes. So Brene Brown, I reference her in the book quite a bit. She's my favorite psychologist. And she points out that we live in this place of scarcity. So the first thing we think about in the morning is, man, I didn't get enough sleep. And the last thing we think about before we fall asleep is, man, I didn't get enough work done. And so kind of understanding that and how scarcity impacts our mindset and how it makes us feel about ourselves and our lives. One of the things I started doing as a result of kind of learning that and studying her research on vulnerability is that I actually break from social media an hour after I wake up and an hour before I go to bed. And, you know, I have found that it's so much more grounding, right? Because when I wake up, I'm not worried about what Bob and Molly and Sue and Rebecca are doing. I'm not worried about their fabulous trips or their cute baby showers or their like promotions. I'm worried about me, you know, and finding my grounding for the day. I get up, I wash my face. (laughs) I I read um, like these inspirational quotes every day. Um, And I do a little bit of meditation. And then before I go to bed, I actually stop sleeping with my phone in my room because I used to just kind of scroll, 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 fall asleep. And I realized that that's not the information that I want to take with me as my last thoughts of the day before I go to sleep. 
And so understanding how our mind is really kind of trapped in this scarcity perspective of not being enough, not doing enough, not having achieved enough, I decided, okay, well, let me not amplify that by layering social media on that. And so that's what I would say is one thing that I've changed. For people who are going to read your book now, what do you think they're going to change? What do you hope that when they read the book, they're going to be like, wow, I need to change my behavior around this? I think there are three key things that people will change, and it correlates to the three parts of the book, too. So the first one is that I think that they'll have elevated awareness of how social media has impacted them and their perception of the world and themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I talk about in the first part, which is really around kind of elevating that awareness around how I was putting all these fabulous pictures and videos and travel things and how at that point I was like probably among the most depressed I had been in my life, right? But I was just like, oh, let me put the fabulous stuff out here. And it made me feel like when I looked back at it, I was like, I am so fake. I am showing up in such a fake way right now and that's not authentic. And it's kind of bullshit. And so, you know, th- I think that's one thing that people are going to realize. They're going to say, wow, I, I, I am doing that thing. That thing that Isa said she was doing, right? We all do it to a certain extent. And then the second part of the book is really about investing in your life off social media. Um, I think that a lot of people have been, have become so complacent with the fact that They're friends with their friends on social media, so they're caught up and connected to their friends because of social media, and that's not true. Just because your friends post whatever and you saw that, you know, they had a fabulous run along the FDR today, that doesn't mean that they're doing all great, and that doesn't mean that you are connecting with them in any type of way. And so in that section, I talk a lot about investing in your life off social media. So the, the, in the title of the book, the second part, logging off your screen and into your life, you know, people oftentimes bring this energy of, you know, I'm going to invest energy and time in my romantic relationships and that requires sacrifice and compromise and all the things. But then the energy they bring to their friendships is like, oh, it should just be natural and organic and I don't have to work at it. And that's just not true. You know, people change and evolve over time. Like the way I communicate has evolved. My, my like priorities have evolved. The way I resolve conflict has evolved. And investing in your friendships is actually such a great way to get like that love and that energy back to you. And so um, I talk a lot about that in the second part. So investing in your life offline. And I think that's something that people will say like, oh, you know what? I should actually invest more in my friendships. And then um, the third part is really around owning your truth Mm -hmm. and who you are. I realize so much in my life that people try to put me into a box. And when they can't quite fit me in a box, because I don't really fit in a box, then they get all worked up of like, oh, you're just not what I expected. I'm not what you expected for you. I am exactly who the fuck I'm supposed to be. And I am very comfortable with that. I walk in my truth. And that it is how it is and it's how it's going to be. And I think that we've become so caught up in who does the world want me to be as opposed to 
who am I? Who do I want to be? Because let me tell you, the only person who has the responsibility of waking up in the morning, looking at you in the mirror and being comfortable with you is you. There's not, there's no husband that's responsible for that. Your kids ain't responsible for that. Your mom and your daddy, nobody else is responsible for that but you. And so I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm committed to being me. And no matter what social media says, no matter what they validate, no matter what's trending, you know, I, my waist may not be small enough for these BBL girls or whatever, but that's fine and that's cool. But that's my waist and that's my business, right? Mm-hmm. And so walking in the power of my own truth. And the thing that I love about the book too is that I was like, okay, let me incorporate other people. And it wasn't just me and my perspective. So in that, that third part, I did an interview with Carmelo Anthony, the NBA player, about walking in the truth in your truth and the power of that for investing in your friendships offline in your life offline. I did an interview with Melissa Butler, the founder of The Lip Bar. And for the first one, elevating your awareness around social media, I did an interview with my mentor, who's also um, a fashion designer, Rebecca Minkoff. And so it was really great to kind of pull that together. But those are the three things that I think people were really good. Like, hey, actually, I'm, I feel more aware of what social media is doing to me. Oh, B, I'm going to actually invest more in my real life. And then C, I'm going to walk in my own truth and and own that. I really like that. I think I realized a few years back that a lot of people feel like social media is out of their control, but actually there are so many things you can control. So I remember for a while I was following all of these Instagram fitness influencers because I thought it would inspire me to get more fit. But what actually happened is it made me feel bad about how I looked because I didn't look like them. And it wasn't actually inspirational the way I thought it would be. But guess what? Like it was in my control. The moment I unfollowed them, I stopped seeing them on my feet and I stopped worrying about this comparison. So I think people, one of the things I would say that people get wrong is like, it is in your control. Also with spending, you know, I talk about money all the time. If your feed is encouraging to spend more, if these influencers are talking about the latest shopping haul that they've done, like unfollow them. Because if you're on a budget, that doesn't align with your budget, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what, to me, people are getting wrong. Is like you have control over the algorithm, what you're getting shown on social media. People don't oftentimes realize that the algorithm is so reactive. Mm -hmm. So for me, one one of the things I also do encourage people to do is curate. So curate what you're seeing. Like, I used to follow everybody, you know, that you can think of. And I was like, ugh, yeah, I still feel bad about myself. Still feel bad about myself. And then I was like, I really don't care about them. And then I was like, oh, I really want to cook more. So I unfollowed them and started following all these cooking channels. And I was like, yes, that's what, that recipe, that recipe. And then I started, like, being like an Instagram cooking pro, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I decided or, that I wanted to get a dog and I didn't know what kind of dog, so I started following dog channels. And so my Instagram right now is cooking, skydiving, and dog stuff. That's like literally all that I see. I love it. Yeah. And even for things like TikTok, people are like, well, TikTok, the For You page is showing me. But, you know, if it's showing you something you don't like, the faster you scroll away from it, right. the less likely you're going to see it. It's when you watch the whole video and when you watch it again that they're like, okay, she likes this kind of content. Yep. So we're going to show it again and again. So people have control. It's just hard. It's hard. And I think that it's something that most people won't bring to the front of their brain as it pertains to how they interact with the platform. And you're absolutely right. Time spent per session and also time spent per post is also a significant input to the algorithm. 
Do you think there's a difference between the different social media platforms? Like, is Instagram more toxic than TikTok or is TikTok less toxic than Facebook? I think that the platforms are quite different and they achieve different things. Like for me, I think that TikTok is a content platform. And I think that it competes more with Disney and Hulu and Netflix than it does with like Facebook or, you know, those platforms. I think that Instagram, I mean, Instagram's trying to be all sorts of things, but I think that Instagram was kind of born in the place of, hey, let me put the most beautiful photos up that people love. And I think to a certain extent, it's a big part of that, which is why, you know, we have the construct of social media users that we do. So the one rule dictates that 90% of social media users are lurkers. They don't do anything. They don't engage. Um, they just scroll. 9% are light engagers. They'll repost or share. And only 1% of social media users, users are creating content. And so when you look at a place like Instagram, where these beautiful photos, not everyone is going to have like great backgrounds and all the things. And so it, it makes sense that 90% of, you know, users are lurkers. I think for Facebook, child, I don't know, my grandma is on there. My mom is on there. My aunts who like can't even really work the ATM like that, they're on there. So it, 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 it I think it's just kind of a catch-all because it was one of the earliest ones, yeah. right? And I think... Facebook is trying to figure out what they're going to be. And with Snap, they are emerging into more the AR, VR space and really trying to like hone in on that. And so what's happened is that when social media hit that inflection point and people were like, oh my God, I'm feeling so lonely. I, I feel bad about myself because of what I see on social media. They were all in this center point and they've all like sprinted to different directions trying to distinguish themselves. It's still a place where we are engaging people we'll never laugh in the same room with. So regardless of whether you're on Twitter, which I think is, I use Twitter as a, as a place where I just share like my shower thoughts, right? You know, I, I like just whatever randomly comes to my mind. But a lot of people use Twitter as a place to bully others, you know, because I'm, I, I'll tell you, I am very much, if I will, if I don't say it to your face, I won't say it behind your back. And people got them real gangster Twitter fingers who don't have the balls to come say that shit to my face. That's not cute. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's Twitter, like people like that thrive on Twitter, you know? So anyways, I still say that social media in general is still a world where you're just kind of seeing a bunch of people who aren't your friends. And so regardless of whatever platform you spend the most time on, um, it's just important to make sure that you're balancing that with like real life stuff that actually makes you happy. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. 
My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura. And I'll also leave the link in the show notes. Yeah. Do you ever think that the platforms have more of a responsibility to think about the mental health of its users? Like I remember Instagram at some point, I don't know if they're still doing this, but they had taken away likes because they, the, or they had taken away the ability to see how many people have liked it. And only the creator can see that because they were saying, oh, well, people are deriving too much unhappiness from the likes. I do think that there is a responsibility of social media platforms to first be aware and understand the impact that their platform is having on people. And B, when you do see a very disproportionately negative impact on a group, you know, there's a lot of research that showed Instagram was particularly harsh with teenage girls um, and young girls and preteen girls where suicide rates were up. You know, they were very sad and depressed at record levels. And they chose not to do much about that and, you know, quickly enough. And so I do think that, first of all, with great power comes great responsibility, Mm -hmm. period. So when you are a platform with a billion users across the world, it is your responsibility to make sure that you are not damaging society or a group of people in a way that they've allowed. And so I do think that they do have that responsibility. Yeah. It's funny because I, I started social media in my late 20s. I started posting content. And the emotional ups and downs I've had being a content creator on social media, because you do have all of these people, the warrior fingers saying things about you. I always like, I feel bad with them. I'm like, wait, I feel worse for the people who are 20 years old and whose brains haven't even fully developed and are experiencing this, right? Because a lot of these TikTokers, they're 18, they're 19, they're 20 years old and dealing with this. And also I think it's generationally different too, where we grew up at a time where for me at least, Facebook came into play right around when I was graduating high school. So I went my whole life without experiencing social media. And those formative years that are really important, I didn't have the pressure of, oh, like not enough of my friends are liking my posts. But this next, this younger generation, they've had social media their whole lives. They're getting on when they're 12, 13 years old. How do you think that's going to impact them differently than maybe our millennial generation? And I talk about this in the book, and I'm excited that you brought it up because I've actually been approached by so many parents of kids who are like, let's call it eight, nine, interests in social media. And they're like, how do I, what do I do? I've been approached by people whose kids are 15, 16. Like, I am like literally terrified of my child's 
relationship with social media. And so it's, it's a huge, huge topic. One of the things that I found, I'm a lot like you, where Facebook came on the scene my sophomore year of college. And at that time, it was still, you had to have a .edu. Not every college was there. So it was really like, uh, it was like the social, the online social of our college campuses and our friends that went to other schools, we can keep in touch with them. Very different than what it is today. And so like you, I lived my whole life playing on sports teams and you know, thinking I was cool because my parents gave me $50 and I can go to the mall with my friends and I would, we would eat in a food court and we thought we were cute. And now, like, if I tried to do that with my, like, 12-year-old goddaughter, she'd be like, this is not fun. Like, what do you, like, <laughs> I thought I was cute in the food court, you know? And so there is, unfortunately, I think a significant negative and potentially negative impact on this younger generation who is experiencing social media in the way that we did not. And so what they're doing is is causing these younger kids, these preteens, these teens that have very malleable brains and emotional states to latch on to, to anchor on to things way earlier than we, we did, right? And so they're shaping their perspective about themselves through someone else when they don't even know themselves, mm-hmm. right? And that's, it's toxic. You know, I've, I've had, you know, people who are close to me, um, I had a good friend tell me, her 12-year-old, she, she's really struggling with her confidence in school and her confidence as a 12-year-old girl, she thinks in part because of TikTok, you know, and it's not, I'm not blaming TikTok as, as a platform, but it's, but it's the way she's consuming TikTok. It's like, oh, maybe my hair shouldn't be like this. Oh, maybe because I don't talk like that in that, you know, or maybe because I can't dance like that, you know, whatever it is. And so I find that a lot of parents are leveraging tools in the right way that these, you know, big phone companies give them. Like Apple allows you to, to regulate screen time mm-hmm. and screen time by app. Right. And so I find that parents that do that more are able to are seeing, you know, less less negative impact with their kids because you're not allowing your, your kids are going to do whatever you allow them to do. So if you're not allowing them to be on social media six hours a day, like the average 25 year old, they're not going to do that. And it's not going to be a habit. The problem comes in when they're like, mom, can I get just like 30 more minutes on this? And they're like, accept, accept. Accept, accept. Um, And so I I think that the reason I say it's a potentially significant negative impact is because I do think that parents have a lot of control over that. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, you know, you send your kids to school, their friends have phones, they see what's going on. And but it just it just takes some adjusting in parenting compared to how we were parented. Right. Um, I, I think that parents have to pour into their kids a lot these days and making sure that their kid feels confident in who they are, right? With the amount of bullying that we're seeing, that's also a big problem. Yeah. You know, people, I was, I've been 5'8 since I was 13 years old. And while people, I wasn't the most popular girl in school. In fact, I was kind of just to myself, you know, as far as being bullied, sure, like with words and stuff like that, but ain't nobody stepping to me, right? Because I'm 
5'8", you don't want this smoke, you know? <laughs> but on, like I said, with kids, you know, you can just like, it's just this. There's no accountability. There's no, yo, say it to my face, say, say it with your chest, right? Yeah. And so that makes it really difficult for, for kids as well. And so the negative side of social media for these preteens and teens is potentially super negative. Um, and, and it's in a way that makes me like super sad, you know, for them. Yeah. Because I spend a lot of time with kids. And I just, I think that there's so much potential in this generation, but their relationship with social media is going to dictate whether they have a strong foundation or not and their emotional health. Yeah. If we were to try to create a playbook for parents, I know I have a lot of parents in the audience. What would you say, I know every situation is going to be a bit different, but from your research and your learnings, what would you say is like the right way to go about this? Is there a certain age you should let your child on social media at? Is there a certain time limit? Is there, what would you create as a playbook? I think that the the hardest thing I'll say about parenting is that there is no playbook, I right? Know. <laughs> and as far as age, I think that actually every child is different. And I think parents kind of understand the emotional um, stability and strength and foundation of their children, right? And so like, for me, my parents... I, I imagine they would have let me on social media pretty relatively early um, because I had like a very I don't give a fuck attitude as a child in a way that so many kids do not. <laughs> like I was like, oh, that's how you feel? I don't give a fuck. Like, you know, but I can look at maybe one of my brothers and one of six kids and my parents would have waited like. I probably would have been on an eight or nine, ten. Just be like, oh, let me let me check out and see what they're talking about. <laughs> oh, they're not talking about much. Okay, bye. Going back to my going back to whatever I was doing. But my I can see like maybe one of my brothers, they would have been like, no, like 16. You know? And yeah. that's because he latches on so much to what people are saying. So I think that, you know, the first thing I'll say is that evaluate your child, you know, and and even within the same family your kids can kind of come into their own differently. I do think that it's important for parents to really understand their kids' insecurities and vulnerabilities and be super intentional about bringing those out so that they could actually address those. Mm -hmm. You know, I found that my parent friends who literally spend a lot of time just investing in strengthening the foundation of their, their kids, making sure their kids know that they're loved, that they're great, that they're special. Those kids don't tend to rock as much sometimes. Yeah. But I think that, honestly, people are, parental fatigue is a thing. It's like, Girl, go get on your iPad. Shut up. Like, leave me alone. I'm just trying to watch a movie in peace. Better yet, can I just use a bathroom in peace? Like, I, I called my best friend the other day, and she's like, I'm hiding in the bathroom. I'm like, why are you hiding in the bathroom? And she's like, I'm, I'm hiding from the kids. Like, you know, like, you know? And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, she has, yeah. like, three kids, you know? And she, one is, yeah, 12, three, and one, essentially. And so I think that... It's really important to, for parents to build the right village around their kids. So mm -hmm. I have recently realized with, within the last year how many, how many parents have actually intentionally made me a part of their children's village. There's only been so much people are going to take in from their parents, right? And the world is so digital now. It's really easy to become complacent. 
But building the right village of people around your child, I think, is also one of those big stabilizing forces and being intentional about that. Because, like I said, your child can get destabilized with a number of things, being at school, on social media, et cetera. So I think that's the second thing that I would say. One of my closest mentors, her daughter is 16 and, you know, she's such a lovely girl. And, you know, she'll just actually come and stay with me in Brooklyn for like a weekend. And I'm like, okay, cool. Or my, my goddaughter who's 11, I took her to Chicago, you know, during the summer. And what their parents tell me about the impact of me spending time with them as like a positive influence that's actually not their parents. Because you know how kids are, <sighs> mom, dad, like I, yeah. I did the same thing, right? And so I think that village is important and it's even more important in the digital age. Um, and the other thing I'll say is that I do believe in the restrictions and the you only get this amount of screen time a day. I mean, University of Pennsylvania did a study that shared the 30 minutes was the time max where people could spend on social media and still be very happy. Wow. 30 minutes, like you, you want to optimize for happiness and still use social media. It was using no more than 30 minutes a day. And so when you think about that, and you think about like if, when I tell people that and they do the calculations in their head around <laughs> how much social media like they're consuming, hours, four or five, six hours a day. And so I personally think that grounding these kids in less social media usage early on is likely productive for them because, again, at this point, Social media has been around long enough to, to, for researchers to actually have very statistically significant data around how it impacts our happiness. And I also know a lot of parents who budge on that. Mom, can I, can I just get 10 more minutes, please? Like 10 more minutes. And I'm just like, nah, but boo, you don't use up your, your, your 30 minutes or an hour for the day, whatever it is, right? So that's the other thing I would say. Like use the tools that, you know, these, you know, providers have, whether it be Apple or Android, and kind of stick to it. You know, that what we don't want is for people to have a dependency on social media. And, and quite frankly, social media creates a lot of pressure for these kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I, I'm, I say this with caution because I'm so happy for the kids that I see on social media, the high schoolers who are getting into these great schools, and they're have you like they're looking and they're like opening up the the admissions letter and they're like ah like and it's like and oh, their God, parents are jumping behind yeah, them yeah <laughs> whatever yeah exactly I feel so happy for those kids. At the same time, it does two things: it creates a lot of pressure for the kids who are two years out. You know, like, oh, well, if I didn't get into Princeton, if I didn't get into Harvard, oh, man, my SAT was only 14, 10 out of 16 and not a 15, 50 like my friend. You know, that actually is very hard on a child psychologically. And then there's the kids who maybe applied to those same schools and didn't get in. And instead, they'll be matriculating at a different school. That's a great school. Yeah. Right? Right. But maybe they, they didn't get into the program at Yale or Princeton that they wanted. And they're going to go to Michigan instead. A great school, you know? And so I think that monitoring 
the confidence meter that your kid has on social media is also super important because what we don't want is for kids, the confidence to just be completely diminished by these things. And like I said, I'm very, you know, I feel very self-conscious talking about these things because I love that these kids got into the schools that they wanted and are so happy. But I'm also thinking about the kids that didn't or the kids who are like, I have to strive to that in two years so that I can create that same video. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, where you went to college is not the end all be all. It's a step in the journey, but everyone creates their own journeys. I recently went on an anniversary getaway with the husband and it was beautiful. Here's everything I got for free. We got free business class tickets for an international flight, which meant, yep, you guessed it. I got free access to the lounge where we could kick things off with a glass of champagne. Then we got a free stay at a five-star hotel where we could relax and go to the beach. Okay, so now I'm sure you're wondering how I got it for free, and you know I don't gatekeep, so here's the insider knowledge you need to know. I did it by signing up for a free built credit card. Built is a credit card that lets you earn points just for paying your rent, and there's no extra fee. And when I say free, I mean free. There's no annual fee for the credit card, and they don't charge a transaction fee for paying your rent with the card. You'll also earn two times the points on travel and three times the points on dining. Once you get your points, you can transfer them to travel partners like airlines and hotels to then get the free business class flights or five-star hotels like I did. To sign up for this card, go to ericataughtme.com slash built. Erica is with a K and built is B-I-L-T. Or to make it easier, go to the link in the show notes. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash built. Yeah. I know we were talking earlier about how the number of friends you have in person, actually fewer is better, right? So we have our circles of five people. That's actually better than having 20 acquaintances, not as good friends. Does the same apply to social media friends, friends you have on these different platforms? Yes. So this researcher named Dr. Huang from the University of Alberta, he did a happiness study relative to the size of your network and the size of your online network and the size of your real life friends. And he found that when you have less than 100 online friends, in the ballpark of 60% of those respondents reported being happy. And when someone had conversely above 700 online friends, only 2 to 3% of those respondents reported feeling happy. And so 60% versus two to three, that's pretty significant. And I think that just kind of reiterates some of the things that we've said around kind of less is more quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. And then I can do the real life one too. Yeah, I want to hear the real life. So in Dr. Huang's research, he also noted that people in real life with less than 10 friends it was about 55% of those respondents reported being happy. But when they went to more than 20 friends, only 10% of those respondents reported being happy. So 20 to like, I think the, the max was 50 friends. Only 10% of people said that they're, they're, they're happy on a day-to-day basis. But when you had less than 10, that was 55%. Wow. So it's a 5x difference. 
one of the things you talk about in your book is when to know when to get rid of a friend. So to kick them off that list. When is that? When is a friendship no longer suiting you? I always say, and I got this from Medea, so I can't take credit from it. Tyler Perry's Medea. But he said, don't mix up those uh, seasonal friends for, with lifetime expectations, right? So I say that friends are with you for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And when we first start our friendship, I'm not going to necessarily know that, right? One of the things that I have found is characteristic of the lifelong friends is A, you know, a level of empathy and being able to understand you, the willingness to listen to you. You know, there, there are things that are basic like integrity, loyalty, and things like that. I'm talking beyond that, right? So empathy, being able to resolve conflict, right? That's really important. Like, you know, we can run through the, you know, fields all day, hand in hand with our skirts and like, ah, but what about when we're like in a really rough field, like, and it's like a bunch of bob wires and shit and we got to make it through. We're like, okay, are we going to make it through this or not? Mm -hmm. And then the the last thing is joy. I, I think that friendships should in general be centers of joy for us in our lives. And when I have decided that this friendship is no longer suiting me and that we have grown apart, it's really because of one of those things. Like, for example, I had a friend where she started, she got into this phase of like, if you didn't agree with her, you were completely wrong and like, you could go to hell, <laughs> you know? And, and I was like, okay, I can have my opinion. You can have your opinion. I personally, if I, all my friends had every single one of my opinions, that would be the most boring life ever. Yeah. Like that's so whack. It's like, that's not even interesting. Right. So there's that. I've had friendships that I have parted ways with because when I achieve things in life, they weren't happy for my joy. They They weren't happy for my achievement and they couldn't, they could only, stand to see me win relative to their wins, right? And, and quite frankly, I think everyone has their own journey. I don't think that I've like made it per se. I think that I'm still on my journey. I know that I work hard and my intentions are great. And I'm going to continue to go towards that. But, you know, those are, they're also friendships. So there's reason, season, lifetime. That's one, right? And in retrospect, they're all so clear. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's kind of moving forward where you're like, I'm not quite sure. And I had a friend, for example, this was a reason. My mom used to always tell me, she's like, Isa, you see how this girl always talking about somebody else behind her back, or always telling somebody else's business to you. You don't think she'd do that to me? I'm like, well, she doesn't act like that around me. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, my day was coming. My day was coming. That was a reason. My mom told me, she was like, you look, you look at how people treat others and you don't think that they're going to bring that same energy to you. And I was like, oh, it's fine. Like, you know, so that was a reason. Yeah. Um, I had I had friends that were just friends without of convenience seasons. Like we were in high school together in a very small town and we had enough in common. Enough. Um, but my lifelong friends are ones where, you know, I've invested in. We've been able to ma- get through conflict. Um, we've been able to like shift and see like be there for each other's successes no matter what and it's it's really beautiful I've also had friends I'll add this and it's a little complex I've had friends where I'm like 
you know, we're friends, but I'm shelving you for a little bit. And so, for example, I have a friend who has been one of my closest friends for 17, 18 years. And she's just in a very miserable place in her own life right now. And what she does, how she's reacted to that is that she has, you know, been more negative and shown up in a way that is, I feel, inappropriate. Um, And when I have voiced, hey, you kind of said this like semi fucked up thing. And this, I'm like, you know, this, this is how it landed with me. I don't think your intentions are bad. She, it was just like, well, that's your problem. That's not my problem. I got other shit to do. And I'm like, okay, cool. You're shelved. Like you, you, you are not one of my joy centers yeah. in this moment. And like, I actually, I've, I got checked. Like I was like, one of my friends said this thing to me, like, am I, am I crazy? And everyone was like, no, that's actually super fucked up. Right. But I, I think that she's in a phase right now. She has a handful of young kids, three young kids. And I think she's really struggling with that in a way that has shifted her in a lot of ways. And I'm, I want to be supportive for her. And I'm there for her when she needs me. But at the moment, she's kind of been mean. Yeah. And so I just kind of, I shelved it. And I said, when we're ready to take that off the shelf, we'll have to have a conversation about it. But I still love you. I, I think you're a great person. I just think you're kind of going through a really miserable and hard and difficult phase of your life right now. And I respect that. It's interesting because every one of those scenarios you described, the reason, season, and lifetime, I can relate to that. Like I've actually had friends that I've parted ways with. And the one thing I remember is it's about this, are we on equal playing fields? Like, am I giving you as much value as I'm receiving from you? And not like it's transactional, not like friendships are meant to be transactional, but still there were definitely friendships in the past that I had where I was just getting so much from me was extracted and I wasn't receiving anything in return. And those kinds of friendships, it's hard to be like, wow, we need to end this. But it should be treated the same as any relationship. Like if you're dating someone and it's not serving you and it's not going well, like you end things, right? So why do some people think, oh, friendships, they all have to be lifelong? (laughs) Well, I think that as humans, we have a lot of anxiety around ending things. Yeah. Around closing chapters. So when we close a chapter on a romantic relationship, that's finite. And that's like, you call your girlfriends be like, girl, we broke up. It's, it's a wrap, you know? And they're like, oh, okay, cool, da-da-da, whatever. But it's also traumatic to do that. You know, no matter how many times, it's never comfortable. I don't think anyone loves breaking up with someone or being broken up with or, you know, whatever the case is. And so I think that we just kind of expect our friendships to be evergreen, I think in part because we're like, we don't want to bring that type of behavior over here. And it's not, it's a relationship. And romantic or not, it's a relationship. And it's, it's someone who's tied to you in your life. And I honestly don't think friendship breakups have to be dramatic. Yeah, I think that there, there are some friends where we just kind of phased out naturally. And I was like, you know, I wasn't, when I showed up differently and I wasn't as, invested they could sense it and it just kind of fizzled that's one way 
and it works for some people. And then there are other friendships where you do need to have a conversation and say, I love you, but this is no longer serving me. Yeah. And that is okay. You know, and I've had those conversations with people. Um, and I've, I've had the conversation, this is not serving me in the moment, or this is actually just not serving me. And then, you know, I, I think clarity is our friend. But clarity is also daunting and hard to, like, accomplish in many things, right? You just, people are just, it's not that we expect friendships to be, to last forever. Yeah. It's that as a society, as a people, we are conflict averse. And we assume that if we don't want to be friends with someone anymore, that's an automatic conflict. You don't know what's going on in their head either. They could want to phase it out and it's fine. But your friendships, I used to be so ignorant on this topic. I used to have the most ignorant attitude. Like, I think it was DJ Khaled. It was like, no new friends, no new friends. Like, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, if you wasn't with me shooting in the gym, don't show up now. And it was so ignorant because some of my closest friends I've met in the last five years. But I also have... Some of my closest friends I met 20 years ago. Yeah. Right? And I was like, oh, I assign all this value to longevity. And someone can be a shitty friend to you for 20 years, by the way. And I'm not saying mine are. Not the ones that are here today. But someone can be a shitty friend to you for, to you for 20 years. And someone can be an amazing friend to you. And a really good, like, friend partner, friend soulmate. I think it's important to date your friends. Um, we don't do that enough, right? So it's like, oh, thank you so much for the flowers. Yeah, I sent them because I know you had like a big deadline today, da-da-da-da-da, you know, et cetera, right? And so that five-year can be very, very meaningful to you because you guys are so aligned, and to your point, on the same playing field versus that 20-year where you've either grown past them or whatever the case is. And so I think that it's also important for us to make room and be open to the fact that there are beautiful human beings that may come into our lives in our 30s, in our 40s, in our 50s, who could still be very good friends of ours, you know, um, because we are kind of equally yoked yeah. or kind of on that same playing field. And that's something that people get wrong so often. They're like, oh, we've been friends for, I hear old people, they're like, we've been friends for 50 years. I'm like, have you though? Have you? Do you find that as we go through different phases of life, I know that you went to school, you had a corporate career, and now you're an entrepreneur and published author. I also went to school and had my legal career, and then now I'm an entrepreneur slash lawyer slash content creator. Do you find that as you're going through these phases, your friends are going to phase out as in you have less in common with them? It depends. Some friends, yes. Some friends, no. I remember when I became an entrepreneur and I first raised venture capital funding, that was a very stressful, high-pressure time. And of course, I'm like on one side celebrating, you know, because it's, it's, it's actually rare in this country for a black woman to be venture-backed um, in technology. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, I was like, oh, my God, I'm feeling so much pressure. I'm like, my anxiety is, like, activated. <laughs> and I realized that the way that I was moving became very different when I became an entrepreneur. So instead of, 
oh, let me try to make it to this happy hour. Let me try to make it to that happy hour or whatever the case is. I was more so trying to preserve my energy. And by the time Friday night came, I actually stopped scheduling things on Friday nights because Friday night I was passed out. I was passed out like six o'clock. I was like, boom, head to pillow, slobbering, drooling, all the things that were not sexy because I was so (laughs) tired. And I realized that some of my friends were taking that personally. They they were like, oh, you're... So what I... Here's what I was experiencing. I'm so tired. I'm working so hard. I'm trying to build this thing from scratch. Emotionally, I'm drained because I'm getting told no 10 to 20 times a day. I'm getting told my idea won't work dozens of times a week. I'm getting told I am crazy and psycho for even thinking that this idea could be a thing multiple times a week. So I'm mentally and emotionally drained. My body's physically tired. And so then by the time Friday comes, I'm collapsed and I'm trying to experiment with how to like build, rebuild my energy in a way that it wasn't depleted when I was in corporate America. And so that was, that was my lens. My friend's lens were, oh, because you were ink 30 under 30 and like, now you're like a founder, you're, you have all these, you're in Forbes and Fast Company and, and whatever. Like, you're just different and you don't have time for us anymore. No, 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 boo-boo. That's your lens. My lens, I'm tired of shit. I would love for you like to come over, but just don't mind if I like fall asleep. Like, I, yep. had, a, I had a friend come over the other day and I was like, yeah, sit on the couch. I was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that for me, it's empathy. Empathy is that, like, for my relationships that have been sustained are sustained by a level of empathy from me and from them. And so I don't necessarily think that it's like, oh, you kind of grow apart, you know, because you're, you have a different path. I have, I, have, I have one path, you have a different path. I think it's more so you can grow together as long as, like, there's a foundation of empathy and willingness to understand someone else's shifts, right? And I, I think... Sure, as an entrepreneur, how do I have more, you know, friendships or relationships with, you know, billionaire founders and celebrities and now than I did before? Absolutely. But, you know, one of the things that we all talk about off camera is how hard the shit is, you know, and there's a sense of like relatability that we share. Like I have a friend who's, I don't know, she's like 10 million followers on Instagram and she's like, She's like, girl, I am tired. This this shit is lonely. <laughs> I don't know if I like it too much. And like, but if I if I said that to like somebody who is like, oh, you should be grateful. Yeah. That's where that empathy comes in. It's like, even though you're not in my exact like world, like professionally, doesn't mean you can't empathize with like what my struggles are. And I always tell people that. And Brene Brown says this too. She says, never respond to someone with at least. Because it's only going to be followed by a very non-empathetic comment. You know, Erica, at least you have a company. At least you have a podcast. At least you people are still following you and engaging with your content. You can have all that and still be tired. And when I start to feel invalidated by my friends on the basis of at least you have that, mm-hmm. that's when I'm like, you got to stop that. Because that doesn't make me feel good. And it makes me feel even more exhausted. And when I, if I continue to feel this way... I'm going to draw back and preserve my energy. And I'm very clear with people on that. 
That's so interesting, that at least. What do you think are some other warning signs or red flags of things that people are saying or doing that aren't actually beneficial to you? One thing is specific to entrepreneurs, but or anybody who has any initiative, but the more achievement boxes I had checked off, the less supportive my friends were. Like, I really want to go and see which one of my friends pre-ordered this book. Because I'm like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I expect... I expected all my friends to support me and to whatever I was doing to whether it was sign up for the app or download, like whatever it is. And I found that that just wasn't the case. Right. Um, and so that's one thing. <laughs> and I think it's a big thing, by the way. Yeah. I would say there is a group chat that I'm in where there's a person in the group chat who would be like, oh, Isa was on this media thing or Isa, like, entrepreneur did this article on Isa, whatever it was. And only, like, two people from the group chat would, like, respond and be like, oh, that's what's up. But then I, I, I heard word of mouth and, like, from their other postings that they were posting about me, but they, they, were, they were bragging about me because it gives them social currency, but they were never saying, saying congratulations to my face. So what, what is it really that you're showing up for? And I thought that was actually really hurtful. Yeah. And it is a red flag. It's like people say like, oh, I know this person. Like, let me put it on my whatever. But like, you never can say congratulations to my face or like, hey, I'm proud of you. Keep up the good work. Something, you know. And I would say another, you know, red flag is for someone to try to unnecessarily attack you. So for example, I had a friend once who I was like, you know, I'm really not feeling this other friend too much. She's like, she's like, but what'd you do to her? You, cause you did something to her. You absolutely did something to her. And I'm like, I didn't do anything to her. Like, I just, I kind of, I, I, I don't switch up, you know, like I've been consistent and like, she, I had, you know, I've had friends who at times when I was kind of on this like ascent or what they perceived to be like an ascent, they would like make sure they said negative things to me to quote unquote, keep me grounded. That's not how you keep me grounded. And that's not cute. And it's very, it's giving very envy to me. Like it's not giving supportive. And so I think that that's another big red flag as well. I love everything you're saying because I relate to so much of it. And going back to what we were saying at the beginning, like people are getting a highlight reel of you. People are getting a highlight reel of me, but what they don't see is kind of the behind the scenes of what is actually going on. What is the low reel, right? And so I want to ask you two questions. They're going to be on either end. One is, what is the thing in the last 10 years that you're the most proud of, that you are just so happy you accomplished? And then on the other side, like, what is a low that people behind the scenes really didn't see that was your lowest moment in the last, let's say, 10 years? I have a low. I don't know if it was so much behind the scenes, but I grew up in a big Caribbean family and my parents were like really strong community leaders. You know, my dad, we lived right on the city line, so we had to take our garbage. And my dad, there, there was a... a an attendant there, and he will always bring him food. And I was like, that's, I asked him, I was like, dad, why do you do that? He was like, you know, Isa, there are a lot of people in life who people will look at 
and assume they're nothing, so to speak. And it's really important to make sure that you're pouring into people and showing up equally for everybody. And I was like, that's what's up. So I, I just, I kind of grew up in this like very connection oriented household where it was all about kindness, hard work, et cetera. And travel with that. My dad, you know, my, both my parents, very academically hard on me. I, I, I skipped two grades. Most people don't know that. And I was building my own computers from seven, you know. My dad was an old school engineer. And so what that kind of started was this whole kind of achievement-oriented Isa. Like, oh, I got to do this. I'm, I'm five grades ahead of math. I need to be six grades ahead of math. Like, you know, whatever the ridiculous case was. I can look back and laugh at it now, but it, like, it was kind of ridiculous. And I described my 20s and my, my late teens as having blinders on, like those horses in Central Park, New York. Yeah. Where I can't see anything except that next that next thing that I'm gunning for. And I think just, like, I went through an experience where something just kind of shook me to my core. So my parents sponsored a bus trip for kids to visit Hampton University every year. And this particular year, the bus ran off a straight road, flipped over and ejected both my parents out the front window. And my dad didn't survive that. And it was the most horrific, awful day of my life that I would never wish on anybody. I got a call from my aunt and she's like, there's been an accident, but she wouldn't say anything. I got a call. I'm calling all the hospitals around. I'm calling state troopers. I'm trying to call the Virginia police. No one's giving me any information. People don't even, I didn't even know for an hour if my mom was alive after my dad died. And the one thing that that experience taught me, despite all of the friends I had on Facebook before I did a Facebook cleanse, despite, you know, I had over 10,000 Instagram followers before I deleted my Instagram. I had thousands of followers on Twitter. And that moment, the aftermath of it, for months, I had never felt more lonely in my life. And it was in part because I was under-investing in my friendships and my real-life connections that could really pour into me in a way that I needed. And I was over-invested in just trying to get that next achievement unlocked. And I was so out of balance. And that's why I even started Squad. And that's why, like, in part, the foundation of why I wrote the book. I want to ask, what is something that you've achieved that you feel like your dad would be most proud of? So my dad always said to me, he said, Isa... You're a very blessed girl. And it's your job to share your blessings with as many people as you can while you're on this planet. Because he was like, your time ain't as long as you think. And at like 13, 14, 15, 16, even 20, I was like, here we go again. You don't have the same shit to me. But when my dad passed away and the way in which he passed away, right, my parents really invested a lot of time and energy and money into children who needed an extra lending hand, whose parents couldn't maybe take off and take them to visit schools. And that was actually, that just stuck with me. And so when I left JP Morgan, it was, I think, a bit of a shock to the senior executives I was working with. 
At the time, I was working as the right-hand VP of strategy to a number of the C-suite executives, um, working with billions of dollars of initiatives, you know, some overseeing, some leading, some building, et cetera. And I said to myself, am I really sharing my blessings with the world right now? Jamie, you'll be good. J.P. Morgan will always be good. You guys will always be <laughs> above $100 billion a year in revenue. Y'all, y'all fine. You don't need me. You may want me, but you don't need me. The world needs me. And so I, I just kind of repositioned and repurposed. And I said I wanted to dedicate my talents to making the world a much better place. And when I think about starting Squad, on the basis of that and learning before I did that I wasn't the only one experiencing this loneliness because I was so caught up with the, with the caught up. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was such a common thing. And I think that there's a lot of beauty and genuine connection. And no one dies and says on their deathbed, I wish I would have worked more hours. Not one single person. And so dedicating my life to helping people realize the importance of those connections and invest in those in a way that's easy and fun, that was, that's what I live for. Yeah. And it took a tragedy for me to kind of get to that. But going back to my dad's saying that clicked with me, unfortunately, after he passed of you're a blessed girl and it's your job to share your blessings with as many people as you can. He was also saying they're not, they're people who aren't as blessed as you. They may not have your brain. They may not have your ability to get shit done. So use that to benefit the world. And so that's just been my life, my calling. What are you most excited for in the next five, 10 years? Okay, so two things. So I'll give a me answer and I'll give a world answer. Okay. So on the world answer, I do think that there is a correction happening around people's investment in their joy. I'm very much... uh, Find your joy centers. I do think that friendship and connection is one of them. For me, I'm a skydiver. I'm a licensed skydiver. I skydive all the time. That's another joy center for me. I'm also a skier. That's a joy center for me. And I think that there's an elevated self-awareness around the importance of that and living life in a way that feels happy as opposed to just living to check the boxes. And for me, personally... I'm really excited. I'm a, another thing about me is that I'm a wino and I want a vineyard in France. And so I go to France every year to a different wine, wine region. I've been studying wine. I'm a chemist by training. And so I'm excited to do more with wine on the other side of, of squad. And so, yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. It's like a random fun fact. I <laughs> love wine, hate beer, never had a cup of coffee in my life. I am such a weirdo. <laughs> I want to end this with a little closing tradition we have. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is about Isa Taught Me. What do you want people to be able to walk away and say, Isa taught me this? 
Isa taught me that my joyful life is worth living. And what I mean when I say that is that we don't need to get caught up in what other people are doing. We don't need to get caught up on what's going on on social media. We need to understand how it makes us feel, but we need to invest in our joy centers, our friendships, the activities that bring us joy. And we are worthy of joy. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you'd like to show some love to Isa, her new book, Life Beyond Likes, is available to order and it's linked in the show notes. Please make sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening and help us out by leaving a review. Thank you for spending your time with me today and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.